1: Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast with me, Hank, and my brother John, where we answer your questions and give you dubious advice and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, how are you?
0: Um, not gonna lie, Hank. I'm not doing great. Um you need to chipper up for the people. Yeah, I mean I can fake chipper up for the people, but then you know, I've been thinking recently like whenever I ask you how you're doing with your uh with your health, you know, you always tell me that you're doing okay. Like uh you you either say that you're doing well or that you're doing okay because like with chronic with any kind of like chronic health problem, you never want to acknowledge that you're in a uh, a bit of a valley. Yes. Um even though of course like there are those valleys, and then uh, it's just a weird thing, because if you acknowledge that you're in a valley, then people start to, like, ask you more about it, which doesn't really help. And, like—but it just—but but, but then you also feel dishonest, and maybe other people who have chronic health problems, when they're in valleys, they feel like it's unnatural or whatever. So I don't know. I'm just being totally honest. Uh, adjusting to this new medication, not going well. Um, so I'm in a bit of a valley, but the sun is shining, um, as we will later learn in about, in about 30 to 40 minutes, um, wonderful things are happening in South London. Uh, there is much to be hopeful about. That is how I'm doing. How are you?
1: Well, first of all, I just want to say how thankful I am that we got through your section of the How's It Goins without any mention, not a single mention, of Taylor Swift.
0: Oh, that reminds me, though, that the weather is beautiful, likely because Taylor Swift's 1989 concert tour is coming to its American end very soon. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm doing good. I just had a Subway egg white flatbread. Uh, the onions were way too hot. And so now I feel like my entire body smells like a giant onion. But other than that, the people at the Subway in Missoula, Montana are lovely. And I I like them. And they're always very, very friendly. Uh several of, several of them uh, appear to know who I am. Recently, I went in there, and they were like, so what are you doing this weekend? And I was like, going to Seattle. And they were like, oh, yeah, for the Night Vale tour thing. And I was like, right, yes, for that. Person who knows about my life. Well,
0: if they know who you are, then it, there, there's a fair chance they're listening. And if they are, uh, you over-onioned Hank's flatbread. Under onion next time.
1: Oh, they didn't over onion it. It was the it was clearly the onions fault. There were not mm. a ton of onions. Mm. It was just very. You know, you never know how what density of uh, onion flavor is going to be in the in the onion. That's so true. Another thing
0: that happened this week, Hank, is uh, Halloween, which was lovely. Um, it was just uh, it was just great. Uh, Alice dressed up as as a doctor, or as she says, doctor. Um, uh, and i when i asked what kind of doctor she would say a baby doctor that's good um and henry dressed up as clone commander gree from the star wars universe uh, Liverpool beat Chelsea which is about the best result that you can hope for in life and uh, Zulea, our office manager uh, here in the Indianapolis office uh, watched Star Wars for the first time the entire <laughs> sexology which uh, she had never seen um, and I got to watch the first two Star Wars movies with her um, after after seeing her uh, Chelsea get defeated by Liverpool so it was very enjoyable it was a good, good weekend
1: good good I went to see the Rocky Horror picture show uh and it was, it was not, not actually the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the Rocky Horror Show, uh, the, the stage version, which they do in Missoula, starring Reed Reimers, who is uh, the host, uh, one of the hosts of SciShow Space. If you've ever seen him, he's Dr. Frankenfurter. That guy is like six, six before he puts on his 6-inch te- heels. He does indeed look like a space alien uh, on, on the stage with all of the normal people it's amazing
0: Hank would you like a short poem for today
1: oh thanks yeah give me a short poem John
0: I've been holding on to this one Hank it's a single line of perfect iambic pentameter the last will and testament of John Keats the great British romantic poet my chest of books divide among my friends
1: are we we done was that that
0: that's the poem that is his entire last will and testament my chest of books divide among my friends
1: ah well at least we got to the death quick
0: Yes, he knew he was dying when he wrote that. Uh, another great line of iambic pentameter um, that uh, Keats wrote in his diaries. Um, he'd been taking care of his brother who had tuberculosis, and uh, Keats um, Keats began coughing, and he coughed up some blood. And uh, near, the, near the drop of blood in his diary, he wrote, this drop of blood, it spells my death. Wow. I guess that's actually a line of iambic quadrameter, but, you know... <laughs>
1: Oh man, still pretty dark. Yeah, I'm glad that we uh, don't have so much tuberculosis uh, in the world, but uh, you know, m- much at all here in America. That's actually, it. I guess there is. There but is. we
0: still have way too much tuberculosis. It's ridiculous, it's actually, and now, how much tuberculosis we have. Now
1: we have the the tuberculosis that uh, that can't that is very difficult to treat
0: as well. Yeah, there's multi drug resistant tuberculosis, but also just the uh, you know the treatment regimens. I when I was in Ethiopia, I spent a lot of time. Or at least a you know a few hours, not a lot of time, with some um, uh, with some tuberculosis patients who you know have to come into these primary healthcare centers uh, pretty much every week to get uh, to get the right medication and and to you know get their. Their lo- loads checked to find out how much tuberculosis they have and everything. And what was really interesting to me is that uh before those primary healthcare centers, uh, they just there was there was no way to get the medication that you needed, which is part of the reason that we have so much drug-resistant tuberculosis, because we had very poorly controlled ways of dispensing uh antibiotics and like and often the wrong ones would get dispensed because it would be, you know, an unlicensed or untrained person or a family member trying to buy medicine for someone. And uh, it was a really, really interesting and like an illustration of how badly we need this relatively inexpensive, um, but sort of difficult to maintain, difficult to invest in uh, primary healthcare systems in the developing world. Like once we have those places, once you build that infrastructure, it completely transforms those communities. What were we talking about? What is this podcast devoted to? Is it about John Keats' death and global health, or is it about answering viewers' (laughs) questions?
1: All right, let's do one. This question is from Clara, who says, Dear Hank and John, I really enjoy listening to your podcast while cooking. Would you mind screaming, Oh my God, it's burning, every now and then? Uh, That would be incredibly helpful. Uh, Apparently, Clara is having a hard time preventing herself from being distracted by our excellent death-based humor and is burning her food. So let's just, uh, let's remember to yell at Clara every once in a while during this podcast. Oh my God, it's burning! I think I think probably she's good right now, but maybe not. Well,
0: she's got that, she's got that. She can just um, make it so that her timer, instead of just making a beeping sound, uh, makes that sound. And I think that that would, uh, it would persuade almost anyone to take their
1: pizza out of the oven. You know, I think I might do that. I might that that might be my new timer. Can how do you do that on an iPhone? Somebody somebody tell me how to do that. At Hank Green on Twitter, and Hank G R E on Snapchat.
0: Oh God! I knew we were not going to get through this podcast without you rev- you saying again your po- your Snapchat username. Sorry, I get all for- befuddled when we talk about Snapchat. <laughs> Let's answer a different question. Okay. Dear Jenny. Nope. Dear John and Hank. <laughs> <laughs> The question is from Jenny. Dear John and Hank, my husband is incredibly creative and talented in using words. His writing has dramatically dropped since we have been married for two years, and it worries me. How do I encourage a writer to write without being pushy? If you've had a similar experience, what has been most helpful to you from your spouses? Um, That is from Jenny. Dear Jenny, here's my response. (laughs) Um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's sister once, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's sister was a great sculptor and uh, but she did, she she chose not to make art for most of her life and most of her career and Vonnegut would always bother her about it and say why don't you make why don't you make art why aren't you sculpting and uh she said just because you 're good at something doesn't mean that you have to do it and uh I guess the first thing that I would say is that like uh people who are talented at something are under no responsibility in my opinion anyway uh to do it you know if it if it brings you joy and and if it um Uh, then then by all means uh, do it. And I don't think that you should use that as an excuse not to do things. But I also don't think you're under an obligation to do something just because you're good at it. And my wife is an incredibly talented drafts person. Hank, you know, this like she, uh, you know, like her, her work with graphite and pencil is just astonishingly beautiful and has been since college but she doesn't really like to make art like she doesn't want to be an artist that's not what she wants to do with her life at least right now and so um and so she doesn't and i used to i used to feel the way that jenny does i used to feel like maybe if i pushed sarah maybe if i got her art supplies maybe if i did this or did that but like you know it's it's not my life and and my you know and 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 uh, Sarah's dreams are not my dreams for her. Um, now, that said, like, if your husband wants to write and just is finding it difficult, I guess the thing that I would say that's most helpful to me is, um, is when, you know, my partner uh, helps me to make time to write, you know. Puts it on the calendar with me and honors that time, and even honors it when I don't succeed at writing. Like even even then is like okay, well we'll just keep keep. Trying. Uh,
1: excellent. Um. Oh my God, it's burning! <laughs> uh, I, I I would uh, I just watched a, a short documentary uh, called Wonderland about an ultra marathoner, and I felt myself wondering through the entire thing. And I uh, to me the point of the documentary was. Uh, Was explaining to me why on earth someone would do something like this. So this guy uh, was—he was trying to do a a, 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 to to break a world record for the fastest uh, run around Mount Rainier, and uh, and it's it's about a twenty-hour run, and uh, that's just that's a crazy thing to me to run for twenty hours. Uh, uh, What? Why? And it makes me think of like what, why we find the things valuable that we find valuable. And uh, you know, like there's no objective reason why running around Mount Rainier faster than uh, another person is, is valuable um, except that it is a, a remarkable feat. And also there is a community of people who support each other in doing that thing. Do you find it as a writer, John important to be a part of a community of other artists?
0: In a roundabout way, I also just watched that documentary Hank at your recommendation, um, and I also found it fascinating immediately after watching it. I went and ran for seven miles until I vomited um,
1: <laughs> really
0: so that 's what I took away from it uh, um,
1: <laughs> i didn 't do that i had a I had a flatbread from subway <laughs>
0: <laughs> I thought it was a really it was a really good documentary. It was made by uh, Ethan Newberry, longtime youtuber and uh Who's just just doing incredible work um, under the moniker the Ginger Runner, and uh, you know I I do think that community is is important. I do think it's helpful to feel like you're writing um, with people and for people. But yeah, I mean, I guess I, I'm not one of these people who, be, who who believes that much of anything has inherent value. You know, like I think that we um, we sort of give things value. We make choices about how to construct meaning in life and. Um, you know we give we give meaning to stories and i do think there's maybe some objective meaning in stories but a, a lot of it you know a lot of it isn't there a lot of it is given given uh to to stories by the people who care about them and the same is true of running the same is true of soccer the same is true of almost of youtube of almost everything that we you know we love and care about like uh there are a few objective truths maybe there are a few objective goods um you know that that, that suffering is bad that uh Parents shouldn't have to bury their children. You know that um, that education is good. You know there are a few, but not a lot. And um, you know, in the course of a human life, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna do a lot of you're gonna do a lot of things that are not inherently meaningful, but are given meaning by the people around you or by the community around you. So I would, I guess, I would say, you know, if your spouse really wants to write, Jenny, then. Um, You know try to be part of that that community
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i know i would i would never have have made the things that we have made over the past eight years on the vlogbrothers channel or scishow and crash course if it weren't for there being an audience there to make things for and also a broader community of youtubers who are doing different and interesting things that uh that and like pushing each other to 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 make uh make cool stuff um and uh, and I'm really happy for, for, to, to have gotten lucky to be a part of that.
0: Hank, we have another question. Uh, this one is from Emma, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm getting to the age where I need to start facing interviews for various things, mainly university and jobs. Do you have any tips on how to present yourself to fit what the interviewer is looking for, but at the same time express who you are, even though you find it difficult to have the confidence to do so upon meeting new people? Also, how important do you think first impressions are in an interview and in life generally? Also, as an AFC Wimbledon player, for the women's side of the club. What? Emma? (laughs) You really buried the lead here. Thank you so much for the support. We kicked off our season last Sunday and I was wondering how good a football player you guys are. Uh, And then she explains the proper English football played with feet um, and a ball, as the name suggests. Uh, That's from Emma from uh, London in the United Kingdom. Look at that! First off, thank you for listening to our podcast, and for your hard work on behalf of the AFC Wimbledon uh, girls girls, and ladies uh, teams. They are amazing. Did you know, Hank, that Manchester United does not even field a women's team? Manchester United, one of the biggest clubs in the world. Have I mentioned this to you before? It's possible. It's terrible. Um, AFC Wimbledon, however, has a really strong women's football program, and I'm so glad that, a- that they have Emma, um, I don't know what position she plays, but either stoutly defending or scoring lots of goals. <laughs> um, as for as for interviews, I mean, Hank, wouldn't you just walk into the interview and say, uh, my name is Emma, I play for AFC Wimbledon, and sort of wait to be accepted?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely not nothing. I, I hire people a lot, so I have a number of actual thoughts on this. Uh, but first, I want to say that I am awful, awful at soccer. I did play as a child. Uh, my only experience as an adult playing soccer, there was a league in my uh, in my like uh, my graduate program, and uh, I, I walked on uh, as, as support. I was like just watching as a fan, and then somebody was like, "Oh, you just go out and play play a bit." And uh, and in my career as an adult soccer player, the only thing I accomplished was getting winded, uh, uh, almost scoring an own goal, and kicking my own goalie. Beautiful. So I, I was not I was I was it, was it was actually quite petrifying. It was one of the most embarrassing things that's happened to me in the last 10 years of life. I
0: will briefly comment on my own footballing skills. I am terrible. Um I played in an over 30 indoor league for a team called the Dead Rabbits. Um I fouled a lot. That's my main that's always been my main strategy. Um <laughs> but I was I was reasonably good in in, in middle school. Not like um not, like, good enough to start for my middle school's, schools um, soccer team, but good <laughs> enough good enough to come off the bench occasionally and have the coach point at me after the game and say, Green's out there trying even though he sucks. Why aren't the rest of you trying?
1: That's right. You were trying even though you suck. <laughs> what um, are your
0: thoughts on interviews?
1: Oh, um, I think... The most important skill in life is empathy, and I think you walk into an interview. If you walk into an interview thinking, "What does this person need, and how can I help them accomplish it?" That's that's really like that's what that's what the actual thing going on is. Like like hiring someone for a job means I need help, and you can provide that help, and and figuring out like w- like what are the like if it's if it's something as simple as a fast food position like what that person is looking for is someone who's dependable someone who will stick around someone who will come in on time um someone who will learn fast and be enthusiastic about it um and that is you know that's a lot of a lot of jobs um but if it's something you know that require that has like a sort of deeper skill set then uh what you're looking for is like you know how can I help this person solve the problems they need to solve? And uh, that's that's what jobs are. That's what every single job is. It's solving problems for for customers and for uh, and for your boss. That's that's what it is. All the way up the chain until you don't have a boss anymore, and then you're solving problems for your customers and your employees. Um, and uh, that's yeah. So like think. Uh, it's obviously it's a very broad thing because I don't know what kind of jobs you're looking for, but that's really what it is. It's going in understanding that uh, that this isn't a person who's going to give you something. It's a transaction that's being made, and and they want uh, someone to help them. And if you're thinking about it that way, when I find people in interviews thinking about it that way, I'm much more likely to be like, you know, at the very least, they are empathetic and they get that I, just like them, need to solve a problem.
0: Yeah, I think that's brilliant advice. I think that um, in the end, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, the person who's interviewing you probably wants to hire you or probably wants to let you into college, you know, and hopefully that can that can ease some of the pressure. It's a high-pressure situation, though, and there's no getting around that. But, yeah, I mean, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to add value to someone else's organization or to their li- lives or or whatever. Like, you know, looking back at my college interview, like, I, you know, I should have been like, I should have walked into that interview and and, and just listened um, and talked about my interests and assumed that in that process, I was going to be able to add value to the colleges that were going to be right for me. Um, but that's very, I, I don't know, that's very hard to do practically. But I think Hank's advice is solid. Yeah,
1: I have a lot less experience as a, as a person who lets people into universities than I do as a person who lets people into jobs. So I don't really know. I'm not really entirely sure what, uh, it's, it's weird to interview to give someone money. Uh, which is which is the process of interviewing and and applying to a college? It's all institutions that you give a great deal of money to, but they would first like you to uh, to feel honored to, for the present. John. Let's move on to a, a question from Lou. But first, I have to say, oh my God, it's burning! We can't forget, John.
0: Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. It's probably burned in the interim.
1: <laughs> this question. Uh, so Lou says, dear Hank and John. There must be a better way to express empathy than saying, I'm sorry. Saying, I'm sorry, places blame on the person expressing empathy and normally causes the person receiving empathy to reply with something along the lines of, it's not your fault, or even worse, misplacing negative feelings towards someone who was genuinely trying to voice compassion to their situation. I've taken to saying, yo bro, I know that feel. But in some situations, it seems improper. What do you guys think? Is there better vocabulary that can be used to express empathy? Good question. I do think
0: that yo, bro, I know that feel is often improper. Um, Yes. I I think that is correct. Yeah, so when I was a a student chaplain at a children's hospital, I learned about this thing called empathic listening. Um, First off, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying I'm sorry. Um, I, I think that often that is what you feel. Um, is sorry and um, and I I don't think that it at least like when I've been in pain like sometimes hearing that I'm hearing that someone is sorry for my pain um, is helpful but empathic listening is basically a version of yo bro I know that feel um, that doesn't claim real knowledge of the feeling because like in fact like you might not know that feel you know what I mean like uh, you might not you might be able to relate to it or identify with it, but you don't want to uh, claim someone else's pain as your own or or claim that you, you know, you fully understand it. So, um, you know, like an example of empathic listening might be that someone tells you that they're feeling very sad and you say, um, I'm hearing that you're feeling very sad right now. Or 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 even, like, getting them to that place that you imagine that they're at, or, like, acknowledging it, so saying, you must be feeling very sad right now, you must be feeling very guilty right now, whatever. It sounds like the stupidest thing in the world. Someone says, I'm sad, you say, I'm hearing that you're feeling sad. Obviously, in a perfect world, you want to um, phrase it a little more <laughs> subtly than that, so that... So that it doesn't feel awkward in conversation, but it is, at least in my experience, astonishingly effective. Um just to acknowledge what someone else is feeling and to acknowledge that you hear what they're feeling is um is really powerful.
1: That's a great answer. I know nothing about that. It's so it's so uh fun to realize how dumb you are sometimes and be like, oh wow, yeah, I don't think about that at all. So tell me I honestly I just want you to give a whole podcast sermon on the empathic. Uh, listening, John, because I I I just want to be better at that.
0: Yeah, well, just imagine how, how people are feeling or listen to how people are feeling and then
1: say it out loud. And don't do the thing that I do, which is like, well, here's how you can fix your problem.
0: No, do not go to problem fixing because it does not, A, it does not work. B, <laughs> um, when it is time for problem fixing, people will bring up, uh, will start to bring up solutions instead of bringing up problems. Uh, so I don't, and, and also like, you know, in most, in most cases of, of like, you know in most cases of pain like there is yeah. no easy solution the job is not to find a solution the job is to find less aloneness right. within it
1: yeah it just always seems like uh that's my that's my default position is to be like there is a problem how do i solve it um yeah
0: i know i well we all want to like mm-hmm. yeah we all want to make suffering go away um and i think that's why often we we minimize other people's pain or we yeah i mean that's that's totally human um but i think Empathic listening is is the way.
1: All right. We've got another question here. It's from Ryan who asks, Dear Hank and John, I noticed that each individual tree changes color in its own time and at its own pace it's not uncommon to see a tree whose leaves have entirely turned next to one whose leaves have barely begun to change. Why is that this person is re- referring to, of course fall uh, a thing that happens in certain places but not in others, uh, and deciduous trees who uh, who remove their uh, a lot of the nutrients from their leaves when it is time for winter and then shed those leaves so that they can uh, so that they don't have to protect those leaves through the harsh winter season and can remove and store some of the nutrients that were in them uh and this is a fascinating thing and it turns out it's super weird and fun and complicated and it has to do with external factors like microclimates that you might not even know are happening uh where like like there, uh, there's a tree on my street actually that uh there's a, a section of the tree that is near the streetlight light. Uh, like, there's a streetlight right next to it, and those leaves change less quickly than the, the leaves all around because the streetlight produces some heat, which uh, the leaves then interpret as uh, not needing to get rid of their, uh, their you know, they they can still continue to photosynthesize for longer, which is actually true, and it works effectively for that tree, which is amazing that something that evolved so long ago can can handle such a new addition to its lifestyle as a streetlight. Um And, uh, but there's also... Oh my God, it's burning! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, John. There's also the fact that individual trees have, uh, different, uh, like different... They've stored different amounts of nutrients. They can take more or less risk, uh, because they, they know that they have, uh, you know, that they either need more photosynthesizing time or they don't. Uh, it's pretty amazing that trees are able to make these sort of complicated decisions. Of course, they don't make them through what we would consider normal decision-making pathways, but through direct biochemical pathways. But those biochemical pathways are very, very complicated and confusing, and we do not understand them completely. It is neat. Um, and I've also seen pictures of uh, of trees that are, like, uh, in a row, and they're leading away from a building, and, uh, and the ones closest uh, stay greenest longest because the building itself is radiating heat either because the heater is on and it is inefficient or because the sun is hitting the side of the building and, and it radiates back out during the night um, uh, be, uh, because it's some kind of large thermal mass. Uh, and it's I just think that it's cool. I love to observe fall, especially because I grew up in Florida where it didn't exist, and now I'm in a place where fall does happen and is happening right outside my window, and it's a lovely
0: thing. Yeah, I am also a big fan of fall, although I did not know any of that before you told me, Um, but it's interesting. I like um, obsessively trying to identify whether or not this is peak fall, so... Oh, yeah. I will constantly say to my wife or my children, if you look outside right now, I think this might be peak fall. And then the next day I'll be like, (laughs) nope, uh, this is peak fall. But then it, it, always, it always ends without me properly acknowledging peak fall. I look out one day and, and peak fall has passed, yeah. as indeed uh, it has here in Indianapolis.
1: It has here as well in Missoula, Montana. Uh, and I would like to tell you, John, that this podcast is in fact brought to you by peak fall. Peak Fall. Happening somewhere in the world right this moment, but not in either Indianapolis or Missoula.
0: And of course, this podcast is also brought
1: to you by Oh my God, it's on fire! <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Running Seven Miles and Then Vomiting. Running Seven Miles and Then Vomiting, the only proper course of action after watching an ultra-marathon documentary.
0: And this podcast is brought to you by the AFC Wimbledon women's and girls' teams. AFC Wimbledon women's and girls' teams astonishingly spending more money on women's (laughs) football than Manchester United.
1: This episode of Dear Hangout is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week. And it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house. And Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials. And the convenience of getting everything online and then, like, just quickly shipped to the doorstep, it's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Tribani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, All right, John, you got another question for
0: us? Yeah, I do. This is of vital importance to me, actually. It's one of those questions that seems small, but the more you think about it, the bigger it gets. Uh, It's from Aaron. Aaron writes, Dear John and Hank, As discovered in the course of recent events I find too shameful to recount, it has become apparent that I have passed the prime of my Tetris-playing career, and indeed have found myself at the mercy of a sharp, unforgiving decline in my skill at the timeless game. How can I come to terms with my newfound deficit of ability and reconcile my identity as a nerdfighter in the face of this horrible crisis? So... Aaron, I don't know if you, like me, are 38 years old and in the midst of a midlife crisis, or if you're a young person who, who just temporarily feels that uh, your Tetris playing is not as good as it used to be. But there will come a day. I, I don't know whether it's actually come. Again, you might just be experiencing kind of a, a plateau in what will eventually be a, um, a you know a massive Tetris um, a roller coaster that only goes up. But uh, at some point, The roller coaster will, in fact, go down and you will get worse at Tetris. It's happened in my own life. And uh, in general, this declining ability thing, you know, losing abilities and knowing that they're lost forever is very troubling to a lot of people. I think it's difficult to reconcile yourself to knowing that your health will never be as good as it once was. Knowing that, uh, you know, your Tetris playing will never be as good as it once was. Um, So I don't really have any advice for you, but I do have quite a bit of empathy. Mm.
1: Mm. I mean, there's also the fact that uh, if it, it, I tend to lose abilities that I no longer find as valuable, um, and 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 I and I like, there's a piece of me that that wants to deny that, that is ashamed of it, and that uh, and that wants to honor my former self by uh, by holding on to those abilities and by by mourning their loss. Uh, but when I look at how I'm behaving, I'm behaving in a way that says, like, here are the things that are important to me, and this thing isn't uh, it, it isn't in the top ten anymore, and so I'm not spending as much time on it. Uh, and so it, it may be that other things have become valuable to you, and you should say to your former self, former self, you really liked Tetris, and I don't as much, and that's okay, and we can yeah. still be friends. Yeah, like... Like you were
0: really, really good at Tetris, sixteen year old me, but you know what I'm good at? A bunch of yeah. things because I don't spend all my time playing Tetris. Mm,
1: mm-hmm. Yes. And I get to I get to have experiences you never dreamed of. No,
0: oh, he probably dreamed of <laughs> Hank, we only have time for one more question before we get to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon.
1: Okay, this one's from Lauren, who says, Dear Hank and John, I'm getting a dog in a few weeks, and I was wondering uh, if you had any dubious advice about how to raise one. It seems this is the best place to find such advice. Thank you for your help.
0: First off, Lauren, way to go coming to your favorite advice podcast for advice on raising a dog rather than any of the uh, resources that are available to you on the internet. Don't even look at that stuff. We've got all the answers right here at Dear Hank and John.
1: Yeah. Uh, number one thing, uh, it, all they want is for you to kiss them right on the lips and, and put their tongue in your You can get their tongue in your mouth. You might want to just put your whole mouth over their nose uh, and mouth or ears. Uh, tickle. They like to be tickled. That's a big, uh, big dog thing. Um, and uh, they're gonna poop a lot. So just get used to that idea.
0: Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I would say is reconcile yourself to a new reality. You know, like currently, Lauren, you live uh, presumably in a place where there's very little indoor. Out of toilet pooping, right? Like almost all of the poop that's created in your house, I suspect, goes directly into the toilet and then and then it just goes, uh, you know, into the, the sewer system. If it's if, if you live in Indianapolis, it, it then finds its way to the White River. But um, but yeah, I, that's going to change. Suddenly you're going to be living in a house where there's a lot of poop Um, and and you actually have to watch your step lest you make the situation worse by stepping in the poop and rubbing it into the carpet. Um, So watch where you step. Uh, Prepare yourself for a new world that involves uh, quite a bit more indoor poop than you're used to. And, um, you know, love, love the dog. Love your dog, even when it's difficult. Because they will love you back, not in the way that you love them, and maybe not in the way that you want to be loved, but in the way that suits them.
1: So, yes, uh, ignore all other sources, and there are so many to ignore, of dog-related advice. Uh, Actually, you know what? Here's a a legitimate piece of advice that has helped me a great deal in in my relationship with my dog. When I first got Lemon, uh, I went to a training class, and the training class said to me, don't imagine that your dog thinks like a human. It doesn't. Dogs, imagine a dog's uh, memory and thought process as a series of photographs, and they have certain photographs that they want to have happen more, and certain photographs that they want to have happen less. And, uh, and and the, the, you want to uh, build those stacks of photographs and, and, and enrich them with details so that your dog will know uh, which photographs are good and which photographs are bad. And, uh, and- Lauren, I, I think
0: we both have no idea what Hank is talking about, and I, I think you should probably seek out the advice
1: of experts. <laughs> and you take the so the the photograph of your dog's good stuff is like like treats and love and toys and those things happen when good when the dog and you can like have the photograph of those things also include things like uh, not pooping in the house and sitting and being a good boy or girl and and then you have your bad photographs of not love uh and 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 angry human be associated with the moment of infraction when the pooping and peeing happens inside of the home uh you or or the barking or the bad thing that they are this doing this might
0: be the most dubious advice in the whole history of our podcast um I'm sure that Your dog's that made mind sense is just to you. a series am, of photographs. Hank, I am completely sure. Oh my
1: god, it's burning.
0: <laughs> I am sure that that made sense <laughs> to you and uh, when it was explained to you, but something has gotten lost in translation. <laughs> Seek just, the advice of an expert, Lauren. Your po- this podcast is no place to come for dog advice.
1: Hank, just crack it open and it's a bunch of pictures in there. <laughs> what is the news from Mars? Uh and the news from Mars? Uh, there is a new kind of engine that could take us to Mars better and faster. So the hard part of getting to Mars is that you have to push the, the, uh, the, the stuff that you want to get to Mars there with fuel. Uh, and in order to make uh, thrust in space, you have to throw stuff out the back of, uh, of your craft Uh, And you have to bring along stuff to throw out the back. And mostly how we do this is with chemical propulsion, where we burn things. And when you burn things, they become much bigger, very fast. And then you use that uh, to eject it out the back of a rocket. And that's how you blast stuff into space and around in space. But you can also uh, use what's called an ion engine, which are very cool. And the way this works is by taking some kind of, of... you know material atoms and you uh and you use an electric current uh you use a mag- to to create a to create a magnetic field and that magnetic field then blasts that material that usually it's ionized material out the back of the engine and the advantage of this is you can blast those uh those uh, atoms, the stuff, out the back much faster than you could blast uh, stuff out the back with a chemical rocket. And because it's going faster when it leaves, uh, it it actually creates more thrust on the other end, so you have to carry less stuff uh, to move things around more. I hope that made some kind of sense. The problem with ion engines is that they wear out very fast because you're bombarding lots of material with ultra-high energy radiation of, of, of some kind, and things break down really fast. They will not last long enough to, send, uh, to, to power a spaceship all the way to Mars. Uh, a new ion engine has been developed that gets around this problem by cleverly bending magnetic fields and could potentially uh, make it much easier to go to Mars with much less money.
0: Well, good luck with that. AFC Wimbledon have won three games in a row, Hank. <laughs> That's right. What? Three straight victories. Tricky. And in those, in those three games, Lyle Taylor, who you'll remember as the Montserratian International, who plays uh, his I- international football for the Indeed. beautiful island of Montserrat in the Caribbean. Lyle Taylor has scored four goals in those three games. Uh, and he scored against Hartlepool. Uh, we beat Hartlepool, who I believe are known as the uh, the monkey hangers. Um, okay, I, I I don't know if that's an offensive name or, but no, they appear to embrace it. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, monkey hanger is a term by which Hartlepoolians are often known. According to local folklore, the term originates from an incident in which a monkey was hanged in Hartlepool, England. That's hilarious. During the Napoleonic Wars, a French ship of the type Chasse Merrée was wrecked off the coast of Hartlepool. The only survivor was a monkey, allegedly wearing a French uniform to provide amusement for the crew. On finding the monkey, some locals decided to hold an impromptu trial on the beach. Since the monkey was unable to answer their questions, and because they had seen neither a monkey nor a Frenchman before, they concluded that the monkey was in fact a French spy, being found guilty. animal was duly sentenced to death and hanged on the beach.
1: Well, that's some some history that you really want to embrace, isn't it?
0: Exactly. I'll tell you what, if that was part of my town's history, I would be sure to be known as the Hartlepool monkey hangers. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. They hung a monkey because they thought it was a French spy and uh, now... (laughs) Now they know now they're known as the Hartlepool Monkey Hangers. Anyway, AFC Wimbledon, not the Monkey Hangers, uh, won 2-0 and now have won three games in a row, Hank. Suddenly finding ourselves pretty close to the top of where we've ever been in the history of this club. Um, Pretty, pretty darn close to the best. League position AFC Wimbledon has ever been in in its 12 uh, year history um, or 14 year history, I guess now. Uh, 25 points uh, from 16 games. We're in 10th place, but we are only three points from third Uh, We play Portsmouth this week, uh, which is a huge club that uh, brings like 17,000 people to each of their games, but has fallen down the leagues because they went bankrupt and then they had to buy themselves. They're a fan-owned club like AFC Wimbledon. Um, We play Portsmouth this week. If we win that game, we will be equal on points with the third-place team in the league. Uh, Some pretty exciting stuff going on now just more than a quarter of the way through the AFC Wimbledon season.
1: Oh, so there is still lots of time to go. Oh, there is a lot of football left to play, Hank. Okay. Well, there's a lot of Mars left to play as well. Uh, do you think that the guy, this, uh, this Monserrati guy, is, is, is the secret to your success? Lyle
0: Taylor? I mean, yeah. I definitely think he's scoring a lot of goals. And the goal, I have to say, you can look it up on YouTube. Uh, if you search AFC Wimbledon Hartlepool um, highlights, the goal that he scored— um, to make it 2-0. Callum Kennedy, uh longtime AFC Wimbledon, Wimbly Wombly player in my FIFA series, Callum Kennedy scored the first goal um, off a very long free kick. But the um the second goal that Lyle Taylor scored was just an absolute beauty. Terrible angle, went in off the inside of the post. It was truly epic. Um yeah, so I, I think that I think he's the real deal. Um and, you know, that's the kind of player that if we can hang on to, uh, to a player like that through the end of the season, we've already got a pretty strong um, offense and the midfield's playing a lot better. So I, I think that we could be, uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows? It's too soon to dream. That's all I'll say. But I'd love, I'd love to be able to dream. So um, on my dreaming scale, Hank, I'm currently dreaming about dreaming about dreaming about the possibility of WWE. well,
1: that it was a very very pretty goal, uh, I have to say. Though I'm a little afraid that one of his teammates yeah. was offsides just before it was scored. I'm not entirely sure how the rules of this game work, but it does does not look like a technical legal goal to oh, me. Oh, it
0: was completely legal. Just one, a player can be offside. they just can't play the ball or interfere with play.
1: Okay, well then, then I think that it was fine. Good. I'm glad that
0: you. I'm glad that you enjoyed that, Hank. I'm glad that you got to see it. Um, this is. Uh, Anyway, Lyle Taylor is—oh, oh! that reminds me that I have to make a—I uh, have to make a—before we leave, I have to make a correction. As several viewers pointed out, I said that Lyle Taylor, our Montserratian international, used to—used to play for Patrick Thistle in Scotland or somewhere. Anyway, that is incorrect. He used to play for Partick Thistle, and uh, while reading— i uh transposed the r and the t because you know patrick is a word that i know and partick is not so there you go (laughs) (laughs) oh man partick thistle anyway uh i don't believe that they're the monkey hangers
1: i'm very confused by this free kick oh that that callum kennedy scored on No, that no one scored on. It's pretty, it's, uh, I think it went off the post and then there was an amazing save, but it didn't help them, John. It didn't help them.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a penalty kick. Lyle Taylor had a penalty kick and he kicked it off the post. And then there was a rebound, um, That we, there was a great save by the Hartlepool goalkeeper, or else it would have been yes. 3-0. So it's a great victory. Well, I love,
1: I, now that I know that there's, like, there's highlights for every game, this is much more exciting for me. Yeah. Uh, why, didn't, why didn't you tell me about this before? It's like, it's like watching a whole soccer game in two minutes. <laughs> I suppose it is. It's very, that was very exciting. That was a very exciting two minutes for me. Uh, the, the, t- the number one comment on this video is, Lyle Taylor is the future. The number two comment is, go Dons, here because of John Green.
0: <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, I believe that yeah. Lyle Taylor is the future. Uh, he's, he's just 25. And uh, I think he's the future not just for AFC Wimbledon but also for Montserrat in their um, long shot effort to make the 2018 World Cup.
1: <laughs> well, I have no idea how that works. What did we learn today, John?
0: Well, uh, we learned that John Keats was a bit of a dark soul before he died at the age of 26.
1: Yes, and his books are available to you after his death if you are a friend. <laughs>
0: We also learned, of course, that... Uh, oh
1: my god, it's burning! <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I hope Clara got through this entire episode without burning anything. Uh, let's, let's cross our fingers uh, that the pizza has come out just fine, and she's enjoying it and not burning the roof of her mouth right now. Did
0: we learn anything else,
1: or is that all? We learned about empathic listening, which is a life skill that I would like to develop uh, with the help of my brother John.
0: And we learned about uh, trees and why they turn leaves, which I'd never really known about uh,
1: until I had the help of my brother Hank. And we learned that the inside of a dog's brain is just a bunch of pictures!
0: Oh boy. Thanks for listening to our podcast, <laughs> Dear John and Hank, or possibly Dear Hank and John. If you want to send us questions, please do so. The email address is HankandJohn at gmail.com. You can also find us on the Twitter. You can use the hashtag Hank and John. I'm John Green on Twitter. Hank is Hank Green. He wants you to know that he is also Hank G R E on Snapchat.
1: This podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. The theme music is by Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown Oh, oh my, my god, god, it's burning! burning!